0: Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode.
1: Dance around. Right,
0: right. Um Well, Lewis, thanks so much again for chatting with me. Um, First off, congratulations on your Oscar nomination, your second following The Shape of Water. Um, I'm interested to know because I believe I read somewhere that you were watching it live as opposed to your first nomination where I think you sort of found out about it later on. So can you just walk me through that early Mm -hmm. morning of watching the nomination, your reaction and just the, I'm sure endless parade of congratulatory um, texts and calls that you received afterward just walk me through that day
1: Sure, sure I mean so the, the you know very shortly the first time I, I thought I just can't bear to watch I'm just gonna lie in bed and and you know sleep it off and uh, and the and the phone started you know buzzing on the on my side table um this time I I got up and I was in contact with one of my workmates and we were watching um and of course, you know, we watched as everyone else watched. And, and some of my friends were like, oh, you must know before. I'm like, no, not at all. So we watched and it was over. And the last last line from um, the announcers were, and, you know, please check the, the website for the other, for the other uh, things like, dang, it's on the website. So we, we made a mad rush to the website. And, and you know, thankfully and, 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 and so wonderfully uh, thankful that, that I was listed there.
0: Yeah. And even though you hear, you know, from others saying, oh, it's a lock, you're for sure. And you never want to hear that. You never want to jinx it. Um, so, but that's great. And congratulations again on the nomination. Um, right. I, I want to um, sort of start at the beginning here. Um, I know that you worked with Guillermo previously, like I said, on Shape of Water. This is your second I believe, collaboration with him with Nightmare Alley. Can you speak to how it was different working with Guillermo on Nightmare Alley versus Shape of Water? Was there sort of a special shorthand that you had collaborating with him that you didn't have previously?
1: Well, in in, in all honesty, I worked with Guillermo since 2012. He was executive producer on Mama, and that's when I first uh, officially met him, although I'd met him uh, when he was shooting Mimic up in Toronto. but uh, I, we worked together on Mama and then with him again on The Strain where he directed the pilot and was executive producer and weighed in creatively for three years of that. And then of course, Shape of Water. Um, so the difference is, uh, so the shorthand was already kind of in place um, and uh, understanding his aesthetic and his importance to detail and uh, his importance to you know close up details and, um, so the language was already there. Uh, the difference between the one movie and the others, obviously we were building two worlds instead of one. Uh, our first world was set in a time, but kind of fantasy, a fairy tale. Uh, so I was able to pull um, wonderful design elements from anything and bring it together. Um, this movie, we were we really set in specific time periods and, and the, the baseline for Gamma was was believability and real characters, real life, real hardship, um, and real success. So so with that, um, you know, the, the, the communication was very fluid, and not only between him and I, but also with Tamara Deverell, the production designer, and Dan Lauchten, the cinematographer, um, having worked together uh, on different projects. Um, the, the open dialogue and open collaboration was just so fluid.
0: Mm -hmm. I know a constant theme that you hear from people that have seen the film, myself included, is this um, noir style to it, whether it's the costuming or the production design, the cinematography, just the visuals in general. Um, But I think I read somewhere that that was sort of a word that you tried to stay away from and you didn't want to rely so heavily on the noir. Can you speak to um, sort of your relationship to that as a concept and how you might have wanted to have some distance towards that?
1: Well, I mean, in essence, it was a color noir. So it's like, it's like an anti-noir, but uh, obviously in, in the homage to noir, there were, there were choices made. Um, again, in those two different worlds, uh, the first world of the carnival was noir in a gritty, very, very uh, textural way. Um, and everything was nicotine stained. And, and, and even though we had color, the palette was pretty, pretty compressed. Um, when we moved to the city, I really worked on, um, looking at fabrics that would reflect light because a lot of the scenes we had very little light. It was dark, very dark and shadowy. And so some of the, um, uh, fabrics that I chose were, were specific to, to reflecting the light, uh, the pebbled stingray wool that, um, Cate Blanchett, uh, black suit was made out of the, the silk satins. Um, and so that was really my homage to noir, but in a color, a color uh, medium.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And, you you know, uh, segueing from that, I know that the film was re-released in the black and white noir style. Was that something that was constantly in the back of your head as you were working on Nightmare Alley, knowing that Guillermo's true, I guess, vision of watching this was seeing it in that black and white noir. Did that influence your work in making sure that the costumes looked as beautiful and both of those formats when they were released in theaters?
1: So, uh, you know, uh, interestingly enough, Shape of Water originally was supposed to be black and white. And so mm-hmm. I had, we had done, um, uh, I had done a study. I'd done a study in the relationship between color and black and white there. Um, and then we of course went to color and now looking at the movie, knowing, having seen the movie, I couldn't imagine it in a black and white. With um, Nightmare Alley, it was color. And I think Guillermo somewhere in the middle of shooting started to feel that it would work well in a in a, in a true noir feeling so as for like preparatory it really wasn't in play um, because we were really working on tonality um, but a lot of the choices in general had high contrast or, or a medium to high contrast so I think it played out quite well in um, black and white. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I believe that Guillermo and Bradley Cooper who plays Stanton has said previously that the film's unexpected shooting schedule, you know, benefited because you had the second half of the film shot before COVID and then the carnival um, section of the film shot sort of during the pandemic. Did you feel that that elongated window between those two filming periods helped in looking at your work and preparing for the next portion of filming?
1: Well, certainly having a break um, uh, for the art department was wonderful because they had built the carnival. And so it sat for for months weathering out and some of it actually kind of blew away in, in a winter storm. Uh, for us, what was wonderful was having that extra time. Obviously, uh, I had a little bit more time to process uh, because when we, when we broke, uh, we would have had three weeks to hit the carnival. And the carnival Although maybe doesn't appear to be a, a the lion's share of the film, it really is. It's where we have the most characters and the most script days, and um, so I was thrilled for the uh, added uh, prep time and processing time uh, because, of course, when you're when you're deep in a film, you're dealing um, with what is needed today, what is needed tomorrow, what is needed in three weeks. But when you can actually stop, you you can take stock. So it was it was helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: There's such contrasting worlds in this film, as I we just mentioned before, the first half being the carnival atmosphere that you're immersed in. And then the second half, you're traveling over to Buffalo, where you're with the wealthy elite in the, in the upper echelons of society. Um, can you speak to your research and perhaps um, studying both sort of what the travel and carnival show culture was like back in the 1930s, 40s, and then also what the fashion sensibilities were like? sort of in Buffalo around that same time period?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, we looked at a lot of um, photojournalism and portrait photography uh, of rural America. And and so uh, even though there's two years between the two two worlds, so to speak, there's a chasm of, of style. And so I was really going for just post-Depression um, and a lot of these people didn't have a ton of money. Um, and so for that, it really was looking at the wear of, the clothes the way people wore you know some people were in their Sunday best at the carnival, other people just had their work workwear um, in regards to the city, obviously it was on point fashion nineteen forty one and um and old, mostly old money uh, established style and and so had a you know a lot of um, again fashion uh, uh, photography and um some really interesting fashion yeah. sketchbooks uh, from the collections of the around 1939 to 41, which really pinpointed a lot of the detailing that I used. Because um, I was really interested in really, uh, really zeroing in on that period. So that would be the same with the suits, having uh, really authentic 19, dated 1939 suits that we were able to expunge the, the pattern and use on Bradley. And then same thing with with Kate, picking out these really unique details that came out specifically in those two years um, uh, to bring, again, that level of reality to, with still a bit of fantasy, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. And I thought this was such a fun fact when I um, read about it, but I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you had original 1939 UK government issued suits that you were able to help inform in designing your costumes with oh. the, that's amazing. Could you touch a little bit on
1: Yes. Yeah, so we had a, a wonderful um, rental house, uh, Manzi, in, in the UK that uh, we went and, you know, I went in and, and pulled a bunch of uh, costumes, which they were exquisite. And and then uh, the owner, uh, Carlo Manzi, came to me and said, listen, I have something back here I want you to take a look at. And, and he showed me these suits and they were impeccable. Um, they still had the cart, the old, you know, cardboard um, uh, packaging on the sleeves and on the front pocket, and and dated 1939 with the amount of yardage used. And he said, "I will lend these to you. You can't, you can't have anyone wear them, but I will lend them to you." And I was like, "Thank you, so so much." And so we we took those and in house uh, my tailor. Um, uh, studied them and then we, we took those and, and that was the basis of the Bradley suits um, and we made a few little modifications for modernization of comfort um, but the essence of those suits were, were true to that period um, because there's always an aesthetic and always in a modern aesthetic to a period film if you're looking at um, a film that's done in the 50s versus the 90s versus 2020 there's always a little bit of an aesthetic Angle, but what I really wanted to do was try to zero in on what really was real and then and take it from there. So it was very fortunate and very thankful to have that uh, connection.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you're nominated alongside production designer um, Tamara Deverell and the DP, Dan Laudson. Can you share how closely the three of you work together to make sure, especially that your costuming blended in with the overall environment of the sets?
1: For sure. I mean, uh, Tamara and I would be in constant contact. Um, I would have my fabric boards. I would have her, uh, her come by and Shane Vieux who uh, does the sets uh, would come with his, with his furnishings for the, for, um, the scenes. And, and we would really study the colors. We would study what, what we were doing. And then of course bring Dan Lauchten in to discuss the level of lighting and whether we were going to warm it up or cool it down and and uh, there were many sets where I would meet Tamara and Shane and I would bring my my board they would bring their their uh painting swatches and and fabrics and we would sit and really refine um what what the final product was and I have to say there were there were periods you know certain days on sets that we would go to where it was really like being a child and you you are in awe as to the, that collaborative um, uh, spirit that that really came to life, and the actors are in the set. Uh, the first time uh, in um, Lilith's office was next level, uh, unbelievable to see um, both actors, you know, completely dressed. The set was lit, and the snow was falling outside. And they called they called action, and we saw the first take, and it was we knew we were, we were doing uh, some beautiful film work.
0: Yeah, I think that just set alone in the office was just single-handedly deserving of um, Tamara's nomination. It was stunning to see that. Um, and that's actually a good transition because I did want to touch on a couple of the characters and your inspiration behind the looks of them. Cape Blanchett, her character, it's such a sleek, cool colored tone. It sort of fits. Um, Kate herself as an actress, in terms of what she's done previously. How much do you, do you consider that, the actor that's playing the character that you're designing for? Or is that not really a factor at all? And then just touch on your overall inspiration behind um,
1: her character's look. Sure, I mean, so here's here's what happens at the beginning of any film. You mm-hmm. you may not know who's gonna play the character, but you, you start formalizing uh, a visual, uh, a visual repertory of, of what you think the character should should be looking like, and 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 then of course when you when you um, get your cast, and we got our cast fairly early, it it informs you even more onto your direction. And so um, when when we heard that it was going to be Kate, and Kate came in, it was obvious that we were yeah. going to go for a very refined, sleek um, look, and. Um, so, for her, it was really about you know, impeccable tailoring. And I had wonderful people in my crew. And uh, we were lucky to have her early enough to get her block set up. Uh, block meaning her complete um, uh, what would fit her. And then from that, we, we worked on uh, doing our blouses and our suits. And so I knew that it would fit impeccably from, from the get go. Um, and working with Kate in the, in the fitting, Um, We made some slight tweaks, but in in general, there was a really good feeling, a really great collaboration, and and Kate has a way, in a fitting, to start moving like the character, Um, and as the clothes inform her, she informs me on her movement, and we made little teeny tweaks um, for that, Um, and and really, really was about the luxurious fabrics, wonderful tailoring, and, um, you know, really enhancing her her inner beauty, for Mm -hmm. sure.
0: Yeah. Another look I wanted to bring up that's absolutely significant to just the narrative of the film. It comes at the end, so I don't want to give too much away, even though it's streaming right now on HBO Max and Hulu. (laughs) So everyone can see it. There's no excuse. But um, Rooney Mara is wearing a certain dress at the end, and she's wearing it as a costume, not, you know, just, you know, because she wants to wear it, she's wearing it to sort of disguise herself and to deceive um, another character in the film. Can you talk about sort of what went into the design of that dress and how it's sort of because you're you're for that specific dress, it's it it is a costume to the audience that's watching it. It's not a dress that she's just wearing like anything else in the film. Yeah, so can and it's, you not, cosplay. To, it's exa- not
1: cosplay. Exactly. Exactly. So- uh no in, in essence what what in the story there was a desire a need to to impersonate so to speak without without uh spoiling it and and so um Guillermo wanted her to have have a costume uh to impersonate this this person and so uh I designed this this dress that was, literally was what would, would be a costume of that time made in the in the uh, early 40s and um so it wasn't completely uh actually you know turn of the century accurate it was an interpretation and it was made of uh, a fabric that was you know uh light and and airy for for the storytelling um which it would have certainly been a bit more um heavier and stiff uh if it was true to the period um and you know i did a little design work with with basket weaving the stripes and and Um, So, yeah, it was interesting because it had to be, you know, something that was not refined and not accurate, um, but it obviously tipped its hat to to the period that um, we needed to needed to to go to. Mm
0: -hmm. And I just had one last um, question just on, um, you know, characters, outfits in Nightmare Alley, which is Bradley Cooper, obviously the the lead in the film. Um, You see. More so than any other character, his transformation from what he was wearing in the carnival section of the film to then, you know, the Buffalo upscale society that he then situated himself in later on. Um, It seemed like in the earlier part, he wore more loose clothing and then he was, you know, more stiff in his or more well fitted in his attire later on. Can you speak to those? Choices, those designing choices, and between Bradley earlier compared to later on. Sure, for sure.
1: So when we when we first talked about this transformation of Stan to Stanton, in essence, it was about um, being an everyman kind of guy at the beginning, and and uh, in essence, kind of hiding a bit of his physique so that we, when we moved into into the city and we could actually reveal his physique, um, and in essence. Um, relating it to his power. As his power became uh, uh, increased, he, we could see that. Um, in the carnival, there were very few pieces that we were working with. Uh, although we did introduce a new jacket um, halfway through the carnival that was a bit more fitted, um, kind of symbolizing this, this um, growing power over his domain. Um, and then when we moved to the city, it really is, was about perfectly fit. Uh, showing off Bradley's physique um, and uh, with little tinges of of kind of new money. So uh, a a bright canary yellow shirt, some ties that were patterned where the rest of the world was very subdued. Um, He had patterned ties and mixed a little bit of the carnival um, palette within the cool tones of the city so that there was always a little bit of a thread through, um, which, you know, stylistically, looks wonderful, and then uh, in, in the sense of uh, uh, symbolism, it also played into, into what I wanted to, to relate. Um, yeah, so that, that really was, uh, and then the fabrications were obviously mm-hmm. so different from, from uh, rough wools and linens and cottons that uh, were uh, you know, stretched and, and stained to impeccable um, cashmeres and, and worsted wools.
0: And if you could speak also quickly to the the final scene, which is just this outstanding moment in the film. Um, Again, do not want to give it away because it is the last scene in the film, but it's just this final frame of Bradley that's incredibly emotional, incredibly um, gut wrenching. And it really it's really outstanding to watch. And you sort of see him carry this emotional baggage with him that he's been you know, traveling across the country all these years with, to this moment where he's, you know, sitting down across from um, Tim Blake Nelson's character. Can you speak to how um, you you were, the story informed what he would wear in that final moment in the film? Since it's just, it's a stunning scene from Bradley's performance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Bradley uh, knocked it out of the park for sure. Um, I think when we first uh, started talking about that segment of the film, um, there was some, you know, some discussion about, okay, is he still wearing part of his costume from that faithful night? And we started talking about, you know, what, if anything, would he still have? Um, And uh, so I think that was kind of what started this, how new is something? How old is something? How wrecked? Um, And we decided that, there would be pieces that were um, original. And um, and then it really was about telling the story through the aging. Uh, again, I had an incredible uh, breakdown team that worked obviously on on this costume, but all the carnival clothes that were all made and then aged. Uh, but for this, we we really went in steps and we went to a certain level. And then I came back to Guillermo. I'm like, you know, is this enough? Should we go a little further? and between um, discussions with Bradley and Guillermo we we found a place um, and you know the destroyed one little shoulder thing which I I loved because it was just so haphazard um, uh, it just it just he could you could feel the weight of the world on him uh, in that costume I think and and um, and yet there's still a little bit of like, a little formalness to, to what he's wearing. Um, and, you know, the, those shoes that we literally wore out and created the whole and, um, and lovingly uh, painted by, by our breakdown textile artists. Um, it really was, was a joy to, to, again, have the opportunity to tell a story through costume.
0: Yeah, Well, it was outstanding work such a well-deserved um, nomination, congratulations again. Before we sign off though, I do have to ask about um, your upcoming projects, but most specifically we can touch on Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, what can we expect from your work on this? I believe it's an anthology horror series from Guillermo this time. Yeah,
1: so, so, uh, Cabinet of Curiosities is an anthology. Uh, so I, wanna, I wanna say horror, but you know, it's horror, but not, it's not soft. Um, so uh, each episode is uh, a different decade, a different time period, a different location. Um, we have some wonderful actors and directors that bring in their aesthetic um, with with the baseline of Guillermo's. And um, so you know, we have some episodes that are that are set in the '90s with a with a modern edge. We have others that are 1910 and 1920s. We we have one episode that that skips. Along from 1909 all the way to 1975, um, so it, it's a it was a challenging uh, uh, challenging uh, uh, project to um, kind of bring in the 50s, take out the 70s, um, and and bring all those elements together. Uh, but but I think there's some really interesting visual um, looks from each of the directors that will will create kind of uh, a different. You will not think you're watching the same program.
0: That's amazing, and given the different time it sounds like it's an even greater challenge than you've had to do in the past. So that is
1: yes, it was uh, it was designer boot camp, I would yeah. say, which I've done before, but you know nothing, nothing like doing it again. That's great.
0: Well, um, congratulations again on um, Nightmare Alley. Thank you so much for um, you taking the time to chat with us, and we're excited for. 2022 and seeing your incredible work in this upcoming uh netflix series um so lewis thank you
1: thank you very much appreciate your time
0: all right have a great rest of your day
1: okay you too Bye Bye bye
0: thanks so much for tuning in please take a moment to subscribe to the hollywood podcast for free on itunes or your favorite podcast app Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Gashwind. Thanks for listening.